Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Gary Gerstel, an award-winning historian who's currently the Paul Mellon Professor of American History and Fellow of Sydney Sussex College at the University of Cambridge. He's also the author of the fascinating new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, which argues that we've recently come through the second political order of the past century and are now awaiting its successor. This intellectual history has profound consequences for how we think about economics, politics, and our society. Gary, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to start the conversation with some contextual questions, if, if that's okay. The first is, what is a political order? How does one start, and how does it typically end? I developed the idea of a political order to understand and grasp political developments that cannot be understood within the uh, normal two, four, six-year election cycles of American politics. Uh, those elections draw enormous amount of attention, rightfully so. Uh, they are enormous, enormously important events, but there are ideas, developments, forms of political economy that really cannot be understood within that time frame. So a political order is is an effort to, to develop a different conception of political time. It refers to a, a political movement that, through a series of victories at the polls, through developing reliable constituencies, through stable network of donors, policy networks, uh, think tanks, media platforms, uh, acquires influence in certain areas of American life, political life that endure for 25, 30, 35 years. A question is, when does a powerful movement become something more? When does it become a political order? And my litmus test for that is when a political movement is able to compel its opposition to play on its turf. So, for the first political order I talk about in the book, the New Deal political order, which arose out of the Democratic Party and Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s and 40s, very powerful movement in American life, won many elections, profoundly transformed American life. It doesn't really become a political order in my telling until Dwight Eisenhower becomes president in 1953. He's the first Republican president in 20 years. And the question is, is he going to accept the basic principles of the New Deal, New Deal order, which were fashioned by Democrats, or is he going to try and roll it back? What the Democrats had done was to declare that capitalism left unregulated was disastrous, that it had to be regulated by a powerful government willing to intervene in many different areas of economic life. This was not Republican policy. Uh, these were not Republican principles. So the question is, when the first Republican becomes president, is he going to try and roll this back or is he going to acquiesce? And Eisenhower ac acquiesces. He accepts the core principles of New Deal politics. And at that point, uh, the New Deal moves from being a political movement to a political order. Something similar happens with the neoliberal order in the 1990s. The architect is Ronald Reagan and, and his Republican Party. Uh, but the litmus test for when this becomes a political order is when Clinton becomes the first Democratic president in 12 years, and is he going to try and roll back the Reagan revolution, or is he going to lead the political, his political party to acquiesce to it? And he he leads, 
to acquiescence. And so the Democratic Party under Clinton in the 1990s becomes also an instrument of neoliberal thinking, neoliberal ideas. The political orders tend to arise in moments of economic crisis uh, when existing forms of governance are are no longer working, uh, when the economy has been sent into a serious tailspin to which there are no easy answers. And that is a moment when ideas that have been dominant throughout the political spectrum come to be questioned and ideas that are not necessarily new, but have been consigned to the margins suddenly have an opportunity to vie for mainstream appeal. And so uh, neoliberal ideals, which have been percolating in various sectors of the global North, really from the 1930s forward, uh, they were not new ideas in the 1970s, but it was the crisis of the New Deal order, the the crisis of having inflation and rising unemployment at the same time, and the Keynesian toolkit not being useful for uh, addressing those questions. This allowed for what had been what have been regarded as heterodox ideas to become mainstream. And similarly, uh, when the new the neoliberal order begins to break up in the in the 20-teens, you have figures like Trump and Bernie Sanders right and left on the political spectrum. They weren't really saying anything different in the 20-teens than they had been saying in the 1990s. And Bernie Sanders in the 1990s was considered a pest. You had to sometimes swat him away, but he didn't really cause you any trouble. And Donald Trump, among New York City residents, was regarded as kind of a fool, very good at getting attention, but not much else. And suddenly, these two marginal figures uh, become the major forces for new political ideas in, in in American life. And what created the opportunity was the financial crisis, crisis of 2008-2009, which throws the neoliberal political world and political economy into disarray and once again allows ideas that have been uh, on the margins to flow into the mainstream and and bid for mainstream appeal gives those ideas an opportunity that they had not had before. There's tons of lines of analysis there, Gary, that I want to pick up in our conversation. But if you'll indulge me, I I just want to ask a couple more big picker questions before we get into some of the specifics in the book. Um, must we have a political order? What guides political and policy thinking in the absence of such an ideational framework? Well, we're living in such a moment right now. I, I think, uh, I don't mean to give the impression, but even though I wrote a book that said the last 90 years in American politics have been dominated by two political orders, I do not want to give the impression that America must have uh, a political order. You could have a, a different system where two parties were, were genuinely competitive with each other and unable to uh, establish the, their authority beyond an election cycle or, or, or two. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're living in such a moment now. Uh, you can see the outlines of new political orders seeking to be born. I would say one on the left and one on the right, but there's no sign yet that either is is going to triumph uh, in in the next few years. So I think it is possible to have a, a politics that is genuinely competitive and quite healthy, you know, in, in that way, in terms of different parties fighting each other at the polls and 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 having contests with a clear winner and loser and voters changing their mind. It's also possible to have a kind of politics that is characterized less by healthy competition and more by paralysis. Uh, and I, I would characterize our current moment as falling more into the latter category. We are without a political order now, but I would say we that we are not in a healthy state of U.S. US politics. Uh, so the answer to your question is yes, absolutely. You can have uh, a period of time in which uh, there is no political order and and we would have to then analyze whether that's a healthy form of politics for the United States or 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 whether it's uh, leading to a kind of volatility and explosiveness and unpredictability that is is bad for politics over the long term. One final contextual question. Can a political order be confined to a single country or by definition, does it tend to be global in nature? And I would just say in parentheses that I asked that question in in large part as a Canadian who, of course, can't help but see our political ideas influenced by intellectual and political movements in in the United States. 
Well, the the story of political order that I tell is a national story for for the United States, uh, rooted in my my study for decades now of of of, of American politics. However, both the New Deal and neoliberal orders have analogs in other countries and have in, in international sway. Uh, we think about the the New Deal order. Uh, sometimes I describe it as uh, America's variant of, of social democracy. Uh, it's a light form of social democracy, but when you have states heavily involved in regulating markets, you're getting close to a social democratic politics. And that politics in the United States, when it was at its height from the 1940s and the 1970s, parallels what was going on in Western Europe at the time. And similarly, the uh, rise and fall of the neoliberal order in the U.S. is uh, tracks very closely with its what I, what I would say is its rise and fall in Britain. And uh, you know, Thatcher is is should be twinned with Reagan, Blair should be twinned with Clinton, and uh, yeah, I I I lived in 2016 uh through brexit and trump at the same time both of them hit me very hard an american uh, by birth and culture working and living in england for a long period of time and you know what struck me about that moment is is how much uh uh, brexit and trump were themselves twinned they 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 were similar phenomenon phenomena laying out in in different countries uh, and also, the neoliberal order in, in particular aspires to be a global order. It uh, it 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 imagines its triumph as being bound up with a world that is freed up for capitalist penetration everywhere. And so, it aspires to to be a global order and to be truly s- successful in its own terms. One has to have an international frame of that sort. By the same token, I I I don't want to exaggerate my knowledge of uh, the politics of other countries, and I so I don't want to say that the domestic character of political orders is the same in other countries as I've analyzed it in the United States. I think we have to allow for a variety there because political systems are different. You can they may in Canada, Britain, United States, France, Germany, all all democracies, but. They don't function exactly alike. They have different traditions. They have di- somewhat different systems, and so I, I wouldn't want to want want to say that the political order, as I've described it in the United States, is a universal model for for democratic nations. I wouldn't want to go there. I, I would just say that it is a useful framework, I think, for understanding political economy developments in Canada. Um, if Thatcher and Reagan were twins, and uh, Clinton and Blair were twins, I think you could add Mulroney. And Gretchen, to to your broader story, as you said, the book argues that after a 30 or 40 year run as the prevailing paradigm, the quote neoliberal order itself is broken. Um, Why don't you elaborate a bit, Gary, on when and how it ultimately broke? The breaking point is the financial crash of 2008, 2009. A political order as I analyze it, for it to be successful, it has to have popular appeal. Uh, it has to persuade voters to cast their ballots for it when the elections come up or for the candidates who are who are promoting it. And in that respect, I see the neoliberal order in somewhat different terms than other people who write about neoliberalism who see it mostly as uh, uh, an elite project developed by industrial elites, financial elites, and their servants in in government to sort of maximize opportunities for capital accumulation and development and free capitalist enterprises from democratic surveillance, public interest, popular control. I don't deny that those are elements of neoliberalism ideologically and politically, but I also think that to become an order, uh, a a philosophy has to have a popular base. Uh, And so Neoliberalism required a message that it could take to the masses. And, you know, Reagan articulated that most eloquently and successfully. Uh, neoliberalism was about freedom. It's about government not telling you what you could and couldn't do. It was opening up you uh, an, a, a life for you to live as you wanted. Free enterprise was going to get you the economic component of that. And no government would be telling you how to live your life. Uh, you, individuals, groups, capital, enterprise, all would be freed from c- 
constraints. And so this in its own way is a is a powerful vision and a powerful dream. And in the U.S., it's connected to the American Revolution, um, freeing people from the, the tyranny of George III and and seeing government as as the source of of tyranny. But neoliberalism had a had to sell more than just a message to freedom and had to deliver on something or had a promise to deliver on something. And the promise was that if if you freed capitalism from constraints, it would become so productive and so efficient that it would lead to an extraordinary a period of affluence and it would open up economic opportunities for all sorts of, of people. And neoliberals acknowledge that you free capitalism a lot, you're going to deepen economic inequality between the rich and the poor. But that would be okay because so much abundance would be generated that all boats would rise so that if the boats of the small people wouldn't rise quite as high as the boats of the big people, if your and my boat wouldn't be as big as Jeff Bezos's yacht that he's trying to sail out of the Netherlands, then certainly we'd still have a little yacht that we could call our own and 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 we'd be happy. So it it was a promise that all boats uh, would would rise. And uh, I think that was always a fantasy. I think um, you know, throughout the neoliberal era of the neoliberal order, I, I think the problems of inequality were were quite severe and there were winners and losers in the globalization world. And if you were, were part of a global district and had access to those opportunities, you could you could be very affluent and you could prosper. And if you were not, uh, if you were in a deindustrialized district cut off from currents of global trade and employment, you and your children and your family were uh, in a lot of trouble economically with other kinds of problems to follow. So I think the problems were always there, but the the fantasy that all boats would rise was sustained for a long time through the 1990s and first decade of the of the 21st century. A lot of it through through mirrors and through these schemes of issuing all sorts of credit to people, subprime mortgages, subprime loans, all premised on uh, unending growth. And so when when that bubble burst, the ne the neoliberal bubble burst in 2008 2009. And the bursting of the bubble was compounded by the responses of the U.S. and other governments of the global north. And their responses were to bail out the banks first and to put the financial world in order and to let those banks be pretty much what they had been before, even though they were widely perceived accurately as having triggered this global crisis. And not enough was done for ordinary people who had suffered as much as banks had, and in many cases had suffered more, had lost more, and were in great peril. And you know what? People noticed the divergence in terms of who was being bailed out and uh, and who was not. Uh, this occurred under the Obama administration in the U.S., and I now think of him as the last of the neoliberal presidents. It's not all on his shoulders. I don't know how I would have reacted. You don't know how you would have reacted when you saw the re the reports of how close the entire financial system of the world came to Armageddon and 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 complete meltdown and also i think to be fair to obama he did not have a robust left at hand that he could use as leverage against the right that he was already fighting but he he accepts neoliberal solutions to the problems that neoliberalism had caused, he brings back into his administration a lot of the people who had been responsible for the neoliberal architecture of the 1990s, the Rubin, Goldman Sachs crowd. And then you see, you know, sharp divergences in recovery rates between the asset class and the non-asset class. If you had money in the stock market in the U.S. or elsewhere in the, in, in, in the, in, in the global north, you were pretty much back to your old asset mix by 2011 2012 in some cases sooner if if you were not part of that mix and you were living on main street and you were dependent dependent on a job and and wages 20 even 2016 you were not you were not back to where you had been in 2008 and so a sharp divergence opens up and it deepens the divide that had been present in neoliberalism all along and that then gives rise to grievances that do not get addressed. And those people who have those grievances begin to look to people who had been considered 
far right or or far left or or just illegitimate. And on the right, it's the forces that Donald Trump is able to muster. And on the left, it's Bernie Sanders and the revival of an American left and American socialism. Bernie Sanders is as big a surprise in 2016 as, as Trump is. He makes himself into the second most successful socialist in all of American history in terms of the breadth of, of, of his appeal. And it is, it is not as though neoliberal policies disappear during this time or neoliberal practices or neoliberal institutions, but they lose their authority. They are, they are, they are contested. Uh, sometimes I have a shorthand for understanding the the core principles of neoliberalism. I call them the four freedoms of neoliberalism. Uh, they are not the four social democratic freedoms that Roosevelt enunciated in 1941. Uh, they are ones of my own fashioning, but everyone recognizes them. Free movement of people, free movement of goods, free movement of information, free movement of capital. This was, in a, in a, in a perfect neoliberal world, you want these four freedoms operating at 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 full throttle and in the, in the heyday of the neoliberal order they do and beginning in 2016 each of them comes into cha- under challenge free movement of people is challenged borders are going up everywhere suddenly you know both sanders and um and trump are protectionists they are not free traders they are they are fair traders they don't believe in the gospel of free trade being the most efficient allocation of the world's resources Suddenly, the, there's a digital Cold War going on, and you can no longer assume something that you and I are discussing is going to appear in China or Russia or or, or Turkey and India. And the Ukraine war then um, is, uh, puts the most draconian measures on the free movement of capital that we've seen in um, a generation or two. So in the loss of the authority of these freedoms, it's not that there, are no, there aren't people in the world advocating for these freedoms now and trying to restore neoliberalism to the to its perch but these freedoms and they're they're acting as a route to a better world during the neoliberal heyday had been unquestioned and now each one is under serious challenge you're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights visit our website www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest every saturday morning we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca now back to our program You make the case that one of the downfalls of the neoliberal order may have been somewhat inherent to its cultural and intellectual coalition. Its political power derived from the uneasy coexistence of what you describe as, quote, two strikingly different moral perspectives on how to achieve the good life. What were these two perspectives? How did they end up on the same intellectual side of the debate in the years following the fall of the Berlin Wall? And did it make neoliberalism's unraveling inevitable, in your view? Well, I consider the um, the moral component of the neoliberal order to be a really integral and interesting part of of the story. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think it's one of the more interesting parts of the book. For a political order to be successful, it has to carry within it a vision of a good life and how to achieve it. And also to recognize if there are dilemmas in the vision of a good life, how are they going to be addressed? It has to be expressed simply in a way that a lot of people can understand. Um, on the right, the dilemma is this. If we free capitalism to do its thing and we free markets, how are we going to ensure that people behave responsibly? Uh, if we're going to give people an opportunity to truck barter and exchange and and remove reg- government regulation, how, how are we going to be sure that people aren't going to consume too much or or go into deep debt or spend their money on vices, prostitution, <laughs> gambling, things of that sort? And the answer that the right gives is to say, we are going to train people to discipline themselves, and we are going to advocate for a strong family life, 
what's a strong family life? It has to be a family life of a certain sort, headed by male patriarchs, women falling into line, children listening to their parents, well-disciplined. Uh, so neoliberalism is is very compatible with what I call a neo-Victorian form of, of politics, which is traditional values, people living in patriarchal, heterosexual household, very conservative cultural politics, that this is this kind of politics is necessary to enable people to enjoy the full fruits of their market freedom, because we don't want to regulate, we don't want government to regulate these people, but someone's going to have to regulate these people, and the best way forward is for people to regulate themselves. So from that point of view, you can see how neoliberalism is is very compatible with a conservative set of values you know, first identified with Britain in the 19th century and during Queen Queen Victoria's reign. And it was seen then and it was and seen in the 1980s and 1990s as a recipe for success for market freedom. You've got to match market freedom with well-disciplined individuals and those that discipline has to come from strong family life of a certain sort. Uh, one of the most provocative and I think controversial parts of the book is is how the left deals with uh, spins a tale of market life compatible with their with their own sense of freedom. Uh, this comes out of the New Left, the one of the series of liberation movements that erupted in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, they saw themselves as opponents of capitalism, but they also saw that government had gotten too powerful and there was a nexus of government and capitalism, the system in the parlance of the day. And this was suffocating people's opportunities, their freedoms, their consciousness, and the goal of the new left became to free oneself, one's consciousness from the tyranny of the system. And so in many instances, the new left arrayed itself not just against capitalism, but against government. And it turns out that the there were many elements of the new left, hippies, um, the uh, Steve Jobs at Apple, Stuart Brand, the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog, who at one time clearly saw themselves on the left, but for them, uh, left politics means a dream of individual freedom and individual emancipation. And so they are not interested in neoliberalism because it's going to discipline themselves. They are, they are drawn to the freedoms promised by neoliberalism because it's going to allow for deeper exploration of the self or uh, extraordinary innovation of a sort that gets bound up with the with the PC, the, the personal computer and the revolution in technology, all the startups on Silicon Valley have a heavy, have a heavy hippie component to them. And then this gets extended beyond just one's personal freedom, but the being drawn to a world where uh, you're being encouraged to interact with people of all faiths, cultures, religions, ways of living, various sexualities, a kind of urban life. The focal point for neoliber the neoliberal order becomes the global cities like New York, Toronto, Vancouver, Hong Kong, London, Paris, a certain kind of cosmopolitan life takes root in these places. And there is a left politics that gets very bound up with this dream of cosmopolitanism, that a world of diversity and encounters between diverse peoples is taking shape. We love it. We want to be a part of it. The left that is engaging in this has trouble acknowledging that this has resonance with neoliberal principles. But whether they recognize it or not, you can see the convergence between a global world of free movement of people and cultures and a world of, of diversity around race, ethnicity, sexuality that the left comes to celebrate, especially, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the dream of communism between 1989 and 1991. Because with that spectacular collapse, the core dream of the old left dies that the world can be reorganized and on a on a radical foundation and so a lot more of the energy of the left after 1990 gets poured into identity politics and those identity politics are compatible with the neoliberal world that is taking shape 
But this moral code, which values cosmopolitanism and the ability to change your identity, the uh, the celebration of, of diversity, this is anathema to the other cultural group that is fastened to the neoliberal order, which thinks there's one way to live one's life, and it needs to take place in a patriarchal family with reverence for God, the patriarch. And so you have, under the banner of neoliberalism, two very different cultural camps. It, in the short term, in the medium, medium term, I think strengthens the neoliberal order because it widens the base on, on which the appeal can be built. But if you're saying that this was an inherent weakness in the neoliberal order that at some point was going to pull it, pull it apart, I think you're right about that because it's not as though these two wings of neoliberal cultural politics liked each other. They were engaged in furious cultural battles. And uh, at some point, they were going to clash. A natural question from reading the book is what comes next? I was struck, for instance, that both the New Deal order and the neoliberal order were taking shape as intellectual movements long before their political ascendancy. What explains the lack of a bur- of burgeoning intellectual movements during the twilight years of the ne- neoliberal era? A- as you said, Gary, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were disjunctive figures, but they didn't really represent credible alternative paradigms, did they? I think they do. I think they do. Um, the, uh, the one question is, uh, in terms of understanding the, the emergence of a new political order, where are we now in terms of the emergence of a new political order? Uh, is this like the 1970s when the neoliberal order birthed burst into being, um, or is it like the 1930s? Or maybe it's like for the New Deal order, maybe it's like the 19-teens, where you had various ideas that would lead to the New Deal order percolating, but they hadn't gelled yet. And maybe in relation to the neoliberal order, it's more like the 1950s and 60s. And if we were focused on the 50s and 60s with regard to the neoliberal order, you'd probably be saying to me now, I don't really see much that's 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 there, but it is there. And I, I would so I think if we imagine that we're at the beginning of the emergence of a new political order, and if we imagine that a new political order may not establish itself till the 2030s, not this decade, but the next, that is that's a useful time frame for understanding that it may take some time for these new ideas to develop. I think the rebirth of the left is a very significant development in American politics. I think even though there's no other figure like Sanders, there's no one to take his place. I don't think um, when he passes or 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 retires, I think he has generated a movement that is advancing on multiple fronts in American society. And I also think very significantly that Biden has incorporated Sanders and the left into his administration. So what we're seeing now is the kind of dialogue that occurred in the 1930s under the New Deal, which is a very productive dialogue between the left and the center of the Democratic Party. And uh, it's not an easy relationship, but the Democratic Party has been strongest when that relationship has 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 been engaged. And so on. Uh, I think the there's also been a very significant turn in Democratic Party politics and maybe in Republican Party politics as well. And one can understand that turn in terms of rethinking the relationship of state to markets. The neoliberal creed was markets above all else, states stay out of the way. And now through the industrial policy that Biden is is putting forward, we have seen a, a turn toward reinserting the state into discussions of the economy. And there are certain issues that governments have to take action on in economic terms for the sake of the well-being of their people. You see this in the CHIPS Act. You see it in the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a, a climate act. You see it in the massive infrastructure infra- infrastructural bill. Two of those pieces of legislation have drawn significant support from the Republican Party. One can see in this and the outlines of a new progressive political order that hinges, hinges on rethinking the relationship of what is the role of government in regulating the economy. So and I, I'm in conversation with quite a lot of few people on a number of fronts. A lot of this has not entered the newspapers 
yet or is not being highlighted because we're so the issues that grab all the attention are issues of of culture and politics. But there's a tremendous amount of conversation going on now. And I think we might regard this as uh, the hidden phase of a, a new political order. In other words, there's a there's a period of time when there's a lot of thinking going on, but it's not visible to someone who's not actively engaged in it. It's like when you 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 launch a development campaign for a university or an institution. I forget what the first phase of it is called. It's uh, you'll, you'll you'll have the name for it. It's you, you don't go public until yes. You've got a certain critical mass of donors. It doesn't work quite that way with political ideas, but I think the idea is useful that a lot of this will be invisible to the general public, but it's it's going on. And then suddenly, you, when it bursts into full form, people will be surprised at how far along new thinking has advanced and how quickly politics can change. So I think there is a new political order of that sort developing, but we also have to recognize that there's a political order of the right that is arguably, in some respects, uh, further along. And this is a, a, a political order built on authoritarianism on one hand and ethno-nationalism on the other that's very impatient with democratic politics that wants to vest in, in, incredible power in strong figures who can get things done and have a tribal orientation. And, and in a world of where we're going to be having tens of millions and then maybe 100 million refugees, the appeal to tribe, and then when the climate crisis hits, who are you going to save and who are you not going to save? The answer that the authoritarian right gives, we're going to save people who look like us or share our religion or share our ethnicity or share our race. And if we need a strong leader to make the tough decisions that democracies are not capable of making, then so be it. And this is not just Trump, of course. Trump is part of a worldwide movement of authoritarians who recognize themselves in each other. Uh, it's Putin, it's Bolsonaro, it's Orban in Hungary, it's Modi in India, it's Xi in China. Uh, so there, there is that other formation out there. Uh, and I think it's certainly in development. I think the unanswerable question for me is not, I do think there will be a new political order that emerges, but the unanswerable question for me right now is which which one is going to win, the, the, the progressive political order that I see developing in the Democratic Party in the United States or in dialogue, the Democratic Party in dialogue with the left, or is it going to be the authoritarian ethno-nationalist movement that Trump in the United States has has come to embody? And I think we just don't know the answer to that at this point in time. Let me put one to you. I've observed in recent months some left-right convergence on the idea of a modern supply-side orthodoxy. It extends from, say, New York Times columnist Ezra Klein to George Mason University economist Tyler Cowen and various others in between. Does the idea of what's been called by some, a quote, abundance agenda, that's something of a hybrid between the mixed economy model and the neoliberal model, hold out some potential to serve as a new political order, or is it lacking in certain ways? Well, I think it, it, cer I think it certainly holds the potential for offering a, a, a political economy that can serve as a basis for a new political order. And you're absolutely right. The amount of conversation going on now in both parties about how to think of um, – the role of states in managing markets, and I would include supply chains as part of the task of managing markets. Can we tolerate, can we as a society tolerate long supply chains? Do we have to shorten them? For which commodities do we have to shorten them? Yes. Which commodities can, can, we, can we not do without? So on and so forth. So I think that's a very strong indication of, of how much thinking has changed. Uh, in the neoliberal era, you didn't think this way because your principle was that the market was by far the most efficient distributor of resources. And anytime government got involved in that process, they were going to screw it up. And that was the core principle of neoliberalism. And that's no longer the case. Uh, and the fact that this is these discussions are going on across such a broad range of political groups indicates how fundamental an inflection point we may be at right now. There are complications, of course, if we think of uh, 
of industrial policy, for example, let me just identify two camps with quite different interests. Doesn't mean they can't ally, but which one comes out on top is going to have a huge impact on the character of the politics that we have. There are the Bidens and the Sanders who see industrial policy as a road to a social democratic order, um, government serving the public in a broad public and meaning meaningful way and willing to regulate capitalism in the public interest in order to do that. But you also have another wing, uh, which is the nationalist or the national security wing, uh, which wants shorter supply chains, not because they believe in redistribution or social democracy, they want to hit China and they want to hit China hard. And they are not troubled at all about empowering a military industrial complex uh, for the sake of confronting China. And, and, you know, a military industrial complex is quite different from a social democratic industrial policy. Uh, and the, the so the question becomes, uh, can, can a coalition be built out of these two wings? Or will they inevitably clash or 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 will a political order demand that one be privileged over the other? And there and there will be people who will strongly prefer a social democratic order and other people who are much more comfortable with a a military industrial complex, national security order. Those are not the same things. And and how those differences are worked out uh, will have a tremendous bearing on the, the character and 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 quality of politics. Another area where there's a lot of discussion going on now that didn't exist before is is the revival of antitrust and the the idea that monopolies are bad under the neoliberal era. Again, the the only question applied to monopolies was were they efficient? Were they de- de- um, delivering uh, goods at a cheap price to people? The older anti-monopoly tradition in the U.S. and in Canada too is says no corporation gets too powerful and has too much control over its over its economic universe is good for anybody because that kind of power becomes absolute and it it corrupts absolutely. And in both the uh, Democratic and Republican parties now, there are strong movements to break up the uh, the social media companies or to put them under some kind of meaningful regulation. The, the nonsense that's happening with Twitter, I mean, exposes the craziness of entrusting a uh, media of a uh, medium of this importance to the the fancy of an immensely rich but very limited private entrepreneur and and so in in both the democratic and republican parties now there are strong movements to 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 put these social media companies either to break them up or to put them under some kind of meaningful regulation and i think the question is can the josh hawleys of the world Get together with the Lena Khans of the world. Um, she's head of the FCC. Uh, he's a senator. Can they get together and and offer some kind of meaningful political coalition on on these matters that that lead a broad cross section of the American public to a place that it wants to go on on these matters? And that that becomes again a really interesting political question for our time and going forward. I just have two final questions for you, Gary, that in a way come back to our earlier conversation about the interrelationship between ideas and politics. Uh, The 20th century was marked by a degree of intellectual gatekeeping because the marketplace of ideas was constrained by opinion page editors, academic journal editors, and so on. That ostensibly imposed a degree of rigor on the ideational process but it also excluded heterodoxy and pushed in the direction of conformity. In today's democratized marketplace of ideas, in which there are essentially no gatekeepers standing in the way of good or bad ideas, is it possible to achieve the kind of broad-based intellectual consensus around political economy that's reflected in the two political orders described in the book? That's a great question. And I wish I could give you a good answer. The uh, the social the IT social media revolution has 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 changed the character of our politics, and uh, I think for a political order to thrive, you you may well be right that you that you have to do the dogged work of consensus building up to a point. It's it's slow. It's it's laborious. It requires institutions that are durable. 
And of course, one of the characteristics of our own age is the evanescence of so much of what we write and do and say, you know, where will this podcast be in three years or even six months, <laughs> right? It's it's in the ether. And, and uh, I would say that in the, in the earlier era, even with all the institutions building consensus and with all the gatekeepers, didn't stop revolutions from happening. It didn't stop economies from crashing. Uh, it didn't stop ideas that have been regarded as as heterodox from escaping their marginality and ent entering the mainstream. Right, e even in in that era, one can point to enormous, powerful changes. So I think we have to hope that just as that earlier moment was not bereft of the possibility of change. I think we have to hope that in this new social media world, we are not bereft of the possibility of order. The, the only thing I can say with certainty is that the social media world is a world we have. It's not going away. We can't escape it. We can't go back to that earlier time, even if one, even if one wanted to do that. And so we have to build order. And I mean that in a positive sense, not in a repressive sense. We have to build order out of the media and um, discussions and ecosphere of intellectual life and political life that is available to us. In other words, there is there is no way to go but forward. And we have to find a way of, just as we might say of the earlier era, that those who were constrained by order felt found a way to, to, to emerge from it and build something different. So too, we must figure out a way to restrain some of our disorder so we can build enduring political projects that we really admire and that are essential to the future welfare of all of us. Nowhere is this more clear than in the case of the climate emergency that we're that that we're facing. So it's not really an answer to your question, um, except the only insight I can have is is that we we must build a new sense of order out of the ingredients of our intellectual and political life as they exist now we have to we have to build this out of the new technology not by ignoring or thinking we can escape the new technology and the new world we have built it's a, a great answer and a good segue to my final question uh, gary I'm, I'm grateful for the generosity of your time and your insights um in that vein having carried out this work do you have views on how ideas are transmitted from the intellectual world to the political world, are there common conditions or approaches that saw, for instance, the ideas of Keynes or Hayek come to manifest themselves in a broad-based politics? Ideas matter, and they matter to everybody. And this book of mine has generated a, um, a far greater interest among general readers than anything else I've published. Um, I, I did not anticipate that when I was writing the book. And so for me, that's, you know, these are complicated issues we're, we're discussing to, today. And there's a big cross-section of people I've engaged with for pushing these ideas forward. And it's an example of ideas escaping uh, uh, that are developed within the academy um, moving out uh, uh, into, into a broader world. Uh, and so I'm, I'm actually very encouraged about the possibilities of discussion that are occurring now and, and that lie before us. And I think also there are there are moments when prevailing paradigms break down. This is such a moment that we're living through. And they are extraordinarily interesting moments because precisely the, the reason there are heterodox possibilities, there are ways... In these moments when paradigms break down, we are in some ways freer than we had been before to discuss possibilities for the future. And I think we're in such a moment now. And so the ability to for ideas to travel is depends not just on our skill as wordsmiths or what institutions we're connected to. It also depends on the moment in which we're living and, and what that moment affords. And we have to recognize this moment for what it is as a moment of opportunity to think in new ways and, and develop new paradigms. And that way, it's an exceptionally free moment, I would say, and we, we must take full advantage of it. Young readers of my book find a lot of hope in it, which has surprised me. 
because I don't think it necessarily concludes on a tremendously hopeful note. It you know lays out hopeful possibilities, but is also clear eyed that we're we're in a tough spot right now. And so when I quiz them about uh, where they find the hope, I think it's in part they've been taught that the neoliberal project was so powerful it would never come undone. And I'm telling them that it's falling, and it is. And I also think they take heart from the neoliberal ascendance over a 40-year period. People like Hayek, Milton Friedman in the 1940s, utterly irrelevant in the world of politics. Their ideas didn't have a chance of of gaining a, a popular hearing. And they were not deterred. You know, they worked for decades. Give Ronald Reagan credit. I misunderstood him in the 80s, as did everyone in my generation on the Democratic or further left side of the aisle. B movie actor, um, not skilled in anything, never read a book. This is wrong. This is wrong. This man is developing his own neoliberal ideas in the early 50s. He's reading Hayek on trains as he travels from one GE plant to another to give pep talks on free enterprise. This is a man with a vision who stuck to that vision. You don't, you don't have to like him. I don't, I don't like his politics, uh, but I respect his, his set of political commitments. I think where the young people who read my book find hope is that in this band of people who were so out of favor in the 1940s and 50s, execute a, an intellectual revolution in the 1980s that transforms America and the world in a neoliberal direction. And they worked at it for 30, 40 years, and they were diligent about building institutions and seeking connections and developing policies and not giving up hope. And uh, I think there's a very important message in that, and that some ideas are worth the fight, even if they take a generation or two. Sometimes you have to engage in the long march before you get where you want to go. And and that means uh, developing ideas, not just at the moment, but over a decade, two decades, even three decades for the sake of a world that yet might be. For listeners who want to understand that long march, I'd recommend they read The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America in the World in the Free Market Era. Gary Gertzel, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>